Please turn with me now in the New Testament to Luke chapter 18, the beginning of the chapter there. Luke 18. Then he spoke a parable to them that men ought, uh, always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him, saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with him? I tell you that he will avenge him speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you know all things. And Lord, when you ask the question, will the Son of Man really find faith on the earth? Lord, we fear what the answer might be. But Heavenly Father, how we pray that just for this moment, for this time, that we would proceed on faith, that I would preach in faith, and that these people would receive in faith the words that are given to them this day, and that, Lord, you would be glorified as you teach us indeed the, way, the manner of prayer that is acceptable and pleasing before you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. And so we come to Luke chapter 18 and to this prayer of the persistent or the importunate widow. Uh, the word importunate is probably a better one. Unfortunately, it's not one that we use so much these days. It's not a word we're terribly familiar with. But it means one who keeps on coming, yes, is persistent, but also persistent in a way that is in season and out of season, not opportune. Not in the sense of coming at the best and most agreeable times, but coming at any old time, even those that are inconvenient. So this parable and the teaching before it and after it, all of it, all have to do with prayer. And before we go any further at all, let me just begin by admitting something that I hope we probably all can say amen to. Actually, I hope I wish that there were those among us who couldn't say amen to it. And may the day come that that's not true. But generally speaking, let's just admit that prayer is hard. It is hard. Okay? It's not hard in itself. It doesn't require any physical activity or labor. People of every ability and age can, can pray. It's not hard in itself, but it is hard for us to do it. Everything works against it. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but it is true. All of our enemies, the world and the flesh and the devil, they all hate prayer. You know why they hate it? Because it's the one thing that can defeat them, right? The, the flesh will be defeated by prayer, and so it, it cries out against any attempt to pray. And everything will be more important than the one time that you might have thought to pray. Every little thing will be more important. The flesh cries out. The world cries out against it. And the devil, our adversary, most certainly cries out against prayer because he knows that he will not be felled by our wonderful schemes and plans and activities. He'll be 
destroyed by our prayers. Right? So they, they all hate the world and the flesh and the devil, all of our enemies, they hate prayer, and they will conspire to keep us from it. And, I would say, if prayer alone is, is hard, it's even harder to make our prayer to be fervent and persistent. Because, you know, any, we all are going to pray for something when the, the issue first crops up, maybe. But if we're not immediately gratified by an answer to prayer, we might just soon enough give up. Why? Why do we give up so soon? Pretty easy, right? Again, there's not many, there's not a hundred different possibilities. Either we didn't really want it that much, and unfortunately that's often the case. Our love isn't great enough. If we loved the person who asked us to pray for them more, we we would care more about it, and we'd really want it to happen. Sometimes that's the problem. Sometimes the problem is that we're not really convinced that, that prayer is going to get it for us. Right? And maybe there are other avenues that can get it for us. Or maybe that our continued prayer is just not going to make a difference. And so we stop praying. We give up. This is the issue that Jesus is addressing. This is the thing he's talking about. He's speaking to those who have some kind of doubt somewhere about whether prayer really works. Whether God is really listening. Whether he's really willing to help us. And whether our our prayers make any difference to him in that. And I want you to understand that the answer to all those things is yes. It is yes. I want us to be convinced that he really is listening. He really is ready to help his people. And that prayer makes a difference to him. Now, interesting again, the note in which he closes, he said, but will a son of man really find faith on the earth? Because ultimately that's where it gets to. That's where it all lies, is, is faith or the lack thereof. All right? The kind of prayer that God is going to bless is faithful prayer. Prayer of faith, exercised in faith, faithfully carried out. And our lack of it, our giving, off, our, our giving up on prayer, has to do with a lack of faith above all. But more of that in a moment. The title of this sermon is, You Must Keep Praying. And we have three points. The idea, the parable, and the exhortation. You must keep praying. The idea, the parable, and the exhortation. So first of all, the idea. Verse 18. Then he spoke a parable to them that men ought always to pray and not lose heart. Most parables have an explanation. There's a couple of parables that don't actually have an explicit uh, explanation. Most of them do, but most of them have it at the end. This one has it both at the beginning and at the end. So it's very, very simple. There's no guessing what it's about. It's, it's simple, that men ought to pray, uh, not always to pray and not lose heart. Now, a word about the text here, that word ought is, is too weak, really. Everywhere else in the New Testament where that word is translated, it's translated must, or it is necessary. For instance, even in Luke, Luke 9.22, the Son of Man ought, or the Son of Man might, suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised the third day. No, he must. He must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised the third day. It's no option. 
It is right. It is seemly. Yes, that's true. But it is absolutely necessary. Heaven and earth might fall away. But these things might had certainly to happen. So it is with prayer. So it is with prayer. You must. Men ought uh, men uh, always must prayer and not lose heart. And not only is it that they, they must do this, they must not lose heart. Because that's the threat. That's the problem. That's, that's why we stop praying is because we lose heart. The word and the sentiment are identical to what we have in Galatians 6, 9. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Right? God knows us, and he knows that we just might lose heart. And he's saying, don't do it. You ought to pray. In fact, you must pray, and you should not lose heart. Well, that's the basic idea. I can't add anything to it. Secondly, then, there is the parable that illustrates this main idea. Verse 2, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. So these two characters, this judge and the widow. Now let me just tell you what a terrible description of a judge this man was. What a terrible example of a judge he certainly was. The fact that he did not regard man was bad enough. Of course, any judge, any good judge ought to care about having justice toward men. But worse, he did not fear God. What a terrible thought. You know, it was for that reason that up until relatively recently in history that atheists were not allowed to give testimony in, in a court of law because it was assumed that you, you weren't going to... Why would they tell the truth? If you didn't know that you were going to stand before the judge one day, you were just going to get, get away with whatever you could get away with. So we shouldn't trust the testimony. Well, if that's the true with a witness, how much more so with a, the judge? course, if someone does not fear God, then we cannot trust them in that sense as a judge. And you can imagine what sort of justice, and he meted out this man who did not, he neither regarded, neither feared God nor regarded men. Why should he ever give anyone justice? But thirdly, so that's the judge. Thirdly, there's this, this widow, and she is after justice. That's what she's looking for. It's a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, get justice for me from my adversary. Notice the situation, okay? As a widow, she has no other source of protection, right? This is not a strong man. This is not an influential man. This is a a widow, and she has no other source of protection or help but to use what God has given, in this case, a judge, to get her justice, Notice also the nature of the case. It is not wealth. It is not health. It is justice for me, for my adversary. And that's going to come up again. We have to remember that. Because sometimes the health and wealth people will point out this, you know, if the matter is the reason why you don't have the Lamborghini is because you haven't been praying long and hard enough. We have to understand the nature of the case, the illustration there, doesn't have to do with that sort of thing. It has to do with more basic and very and normally um, more spiritual things. Anyhow, that's the situation. There's the judge, there's the widow, and the judge was true to form in verse 4, and he would not for a while. And he would not for 
a while. That's a crucial thing for a while. Right? There's a delay between the first time that the request is made and when it's actually happened for a while. But that changes. And afterwards, afterwards, he says within himself, Though I do not fear God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me, lest she trouble me. See, that's the reason. It's not he finally came to fear God. He didn't finally start regarding man. It's because this widow is troubling me. And more specifically, lest by her continual coming, she weary me. Think about that. The NIV, I think wrongly, has it. I don't know if anyone has an NIV, but it says, lest she come attack me. I don't think that's what it means. What it's saying is, that lest in the end, by her continual coming, she torment me by this. And I don't want that to happen. And so, she, so he changes her mind, his mind and decides to give her justice. Now, what is he going to do specifically? He says, I will vindicate her. I will avenge her. This is really important as well because you have to understand the context of this, of this parable and the context of this passage. Right beforehand, we had the coming of Christ. That's what the whole thing was about, the end of the world and the coming of Christ. That was the question. That was the, the, the discussion. It was all about when Christ returns. And in Luke twenty one twenty two, it says, These are the days of vengeance in which all things that are written may be fulfilled. So the nature of that coming, when Jesus again describes it in Luke chapter 22, has to do with vengeance, of avenging God's people. That's what we're talking about. And what they're saying is, although you don't see it now, the coming of the Lord, though it's not here right now, it is coming. And the Lord will come and avenge his people. Now, beyond that, I would also say that immediately after this parable, what do we have? What's the next thing on the list? What's next in the chapter? Well, it's a wonderful other parable, isn't it, of the Pharisee and the tax collector. In Luke 18, 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. And you're reminded of this legal terminology of those who are justified, those who are vindicated in the sight of God who is the judge. They are his people. And those who desire to be vindicated in this way, those who desire to be declared just, they can pray to God and God will answer them speedily. Well, that's the, the idea, and then, we have, then this is the parable that has illustrated it, the idea that we should, we should keep on praying and not lose heart. And then finally, thirdly, we have the exhortation in verse 6. Then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said. It's a, it's a funny thing even to say it. He's saying, learn from this unjust judge who did not regard man. He, he didn't fear God. He's an unjust judge, but what he's saying is true, and we should learn from it. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with him? Okay? Now, let me just say, I'll explain some of the elements in a moment, but let me just say, this is the issue. The point is that even if God were like this unjust judge, and he's not, 
But even if God were like this unjust judge, you would still have every hope of getting what you need, what you want, just by mere persistence. Because even the worst case scenario of a judge who has no other reason on this earth to do anything for you at all, were you merely to keep on coming, you would eventually get what you wanted. God is so much better than that. First of all, in verse 7 he says, And shall God not avenge his own elect? You understand that this judge had nothing to do with his widow. It's a random judge and a random widow. There's no relationship there. And what he's emphasizing is this is your, God's own elect. He loves us. He has chosen us. He has sent his son to die for us. There's nothing he wouldn't do for us. He has this relationship with us. And will he not avenge his own elect? Of course he will. It's predicated on this wonderful relationship. I'd say also, by the way, it's predicated on those who cry out day and night to him. It's predicated on the fact that they are praying and not casually either, you see. They are crying out day and night. That was the question, wasn't it? Is God going to listen to me? And the answer is yes. He will listen to his own elect. He loves you, cares for you. He will, do, he will do everything for you. Nothing he will withhold. No good thing will he withhold from you. And does prayer make a difference? And the answer is yes. Prayer absolutely makes a difference to them. He says, those who are crying out day and night to me. Though he bears long with them. Because here's the thing. It might not be immediate. Here's the thing. It requires patience, you see. We have to believe that he will eventually answer, but there may be a delay in time. This is the exhortation. Hear what the unjust judge said. God is at least that good. Your relationship with him is a hundred times better than the judge to the, the widow. And God himself is infinitely better than this unjust judge. And you can be certain that your prayers matter to him and will soon enough eventually be answered. Now, the prayer closes with this sober statement. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Hmm. Sober. Even though he's given every promise in the world... Even though he's given every assurance in the world, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? That's an open question. Well, the application, and really this is the emphasis of the sermon, and is on the application because really the principle couldn't be any clearer. There's nothing much to be said about it. The, the parable, the illustration of it, likewise, is very, very clear. And as is the exhortation of all these things, it's really, really clear that we, should, that we should pray and keep on praying and not lose heart. And I would say, therefore, that the first application of this is that we should pray unashamedly. Okay? Unashamedly. I use that word in the sense that I take it to be a description of this widow. I thought long and hard about some word that I was going to use. I, I, I almost used the word shamelessly, but that would give the wrong impression. So instead I'm saying unashamedly. And I'm preaching to those whom just might be erring on the other side. More likely to err on the side of reticence than on shamelessness, okay? 
pray unashamedly. We need to understand that God uses prayer. God has ordained it. He uses it. People sometimes ask, why pray if God already knows? There's a book by that title, right? If, you're, if your thought is that prayer is merely informing God of something he didn't know, then we say, why pray? Here he is. But listen, let me ask you this. Why did he make the covenant of the rainbow? Do you remember that? Here's the covenant of the rainbow. Here's the omniscient God who could as well cease to exist as to forget a single thing ever. Yet he has established this phenomenon of the, of the rainbow so that when he sees it, what happens? That we remember? No. That he remembers his covenant never, his promise never to destroy the world again by water. That's why he said he made this rainbow, so that he remembers to keep his covenant. Now, you say, why? Well, he ordains means that he intends to use. That's what he does. And one of those means is the rainbow. And one of those means is prayer. Okay? There is no shame. There's no embarrassment to use it. If God himself has no embarrassment, do you think every time a rainbow appears, the Lord says, oh, no, I don't need another reminder about that. Please stop. No. He's not embarrassed about it. This is his ordained means. And so likewise, when you come to him in prayer, the last thing that you should ever think is, the Lord probably doesn't want to hear this again. He does. This is his means. Now then, I'm saying this is all in this first application, pray unashamedly. We saw that the widow knew what was supposed to happen. She was confident. There was an injustice. She knew that the judge is there to vindicate people who are in the right. So she was not ashamed to keep coming until he did his job. You're the judge. I'm the widow. There's injustice. Get justice for me from my adversary. And I'm going to keep doing it. She's not ashamed to show up again and again and again. Well, so it is with God. You know, God has an office. He is a judge. That is the most direct parallel here. Here's a judge of some village But God is a judge of the whole earth. And Abraham can say, will not the judge of the whole earth do right? We can say likewise. We we come to him on the basis, this is your office. You are the just judge. But it's not, not just that. He has many offices, many titles. And what is more, he has made many promises to us. And so we have to ask, is there a promise anywhere in God's word? It's a big word. Take a look. Is there a promise anywhere here in God's word that is relevant to the situation? Well, then here's the way I might put it. Well, then we have him. Okay? We have him. We will press our case relentlessly. We, will, we know that he will eventually give in because there is some promise relevant to the situation. And therefore, we must keep on asking. It's his job. If it's true, if it's his office, if it's his freely given promise to us, remember, we don't bind him. He binds himself by his promises. He is already bound by them. And we come to him on that basis. Now, what kind of prayer is going to avail with him? Not casual prayer, but wrestling with God. You have that picture, don't you? And you you wonder why. The Lord knows what's going to happen. The Lord knows the outcome. The Lord knows what he's going to do for Jacob in the end. But there is Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord. 
This is a picture of our dealings with God, that we should pray in that manner, unashamedly. Now, I would say along these lines that we ought to make a list of the things that you believe God has promised. Lord, you said that of all those who come to you, you would would not turn away any one of them, but you would give them eternal life. Do you believe that? Well, if you're not a Christian, this is a prayer that you should pray most fervently. Lord, you said you would build your church. Well, here's your church. Build it. Lord, you said you'd bless the means of grace. You said you'd always provide a way out of temptation. Do we believe that? Do we pray fervently along these lines? Have we fallen this week? Have we sinned? We must come to him saying, Lord, you have said that you'd always provide a way out for, for those who want a way out from every temptation. Lord, you said you provide for the needs of your people. Absolutely. Lord, you said you'd be the God of our children as well as, as us. Lord, we hold him to these promises in faith. They don't seem to make any sense, but we hold him to these promises in faith. Now, let me say, to pray with that kind of confident boldness might be distasteful to us. Okay? It might be distasteful to us. Sometimes we're embarrassed to keep uh, maybe... Um, shopkeepers or service providers were sometimes embarrassed to keep them to their promises and terms and conditions. But I want us to understand that it's not distasteful to God. It's an exercise of faith. It's, it's, a, it's a measure. When, he, when we go to somewhere else, he says, is there not a God in Israel that you could bring this to? When we give up too soon on these prayers, did he say, Are, is your faith really so small? that you really thought I wasn't going to answer that in the end? Did you not believe the promise that I made to you? We might find it distasteful to pray so unashamedly, but he does not. He does not. Well, let me just give you a good example of that in Genesis 18. This is, of course, Abraham before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is Genesis 18.22. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, But Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it for you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Strong. So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Great. Well, Abraham has just boldly stood, stood up for the, the people as their intercessor. He's only connected by the, the vaguest of ways, right? That his nephew lives in that place, but he is interceding for them like it was their own, his own family, all of them. And he's done it. He he has held God to his office as righteous judge, and now he can sit down. But oh no, no, he's not done yet, right? And Abraham answered and said, Indeed, I who am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than the fifty righteous. Would you destroy all the city for the lack of five? So he said, If I find there forty-five, I will not destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose there be forty found there. He said, I will not do it for the sake of 40. 
And he said, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 shall be found there. And you just say, Abraham, please stop. This is embarrassing. He's not embarrassed. The Lord's not embarrassed. The Lord doesn't say stop. The Lord never says stop, by the way. He even gets down to the 10, and, and the Lord does not, even at that moment, foreclose any possibility of further. Abraham finally gives up at 10. This is the sort of prayer that is pleasing to the Lord. Now, it is marked absolutely by respectfulness and tone. You know, when he says, I indeed who am but dust and ashes have taken upon it, he's acknowledging his position. But he's also holding God to it, absolutely. Far be it from you to do such a thing. He is making this argument. He is reasoning with the Lord. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. But it sort of sounds like to me, maybe the way that that widow might have argued before that judge. The effect is that both of them get what they want. That boldness is, of course, based on our standing with with God. Yes, we are his constituents, but more so we are his elect and we are his friends. We are his children. And we have to believe that. That's why we can pray so unashamedly. So I say find some argument. Now, the sounder and the more relevant, the better, of course. But I am sometimes amazed with the arguments that have prevailed with God. We mentioned not so long ago Moses, right? He was going to destroy the people. And he says, you can't do that, Lord, because the Egyptians, the Egyptians will hear. And so you can't destroy your people. Okay, maybe. But you know what? The Lord says, you're right, Moses. You're right. I won't destroy this people. Thanks for praying. Find some reason and hold God to it. Well, I say pray unashamedly. I say find a a rationale that you can, a promise and a reason that you can hold God to. And I would say don't lose heart. Okay? Because that's the thing. That's what this is pointing us out. He's, he's speaking to a people that might have prayed initially, but their tendency is to lose heart. And he says, don't lose heart. It's, it's, it, he says he's going to do it speedily. But he's speaking of the end of the world in this particular case, I think. And God's perspective on time is different than our own. We know a day in the sight of the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as, as, as a day. And so for us, it might seem a long time. Now, take an example. We can see this, can't we? Our perspective on time is different than a little child. If you have a two-year-old at dinner, how patient is a two-year-old? The two-year-old is, is, is screaming for food. When you know good and well that in 30 seconds they're going to be given this food, and they've done it over and over and over again, this pattern has emerged that this is the way it works. And yet to the two-year-old, you're delaying without reason And you are taking your sweet time to feed the two-year-old. Well, so we are with God. We need to have a little more patience and know that our good God will eventually answer all the things that are good and right in his sight. Well, I would say finally that we should pray in faith. Because that's again the issue. Will he find faith on the earth? That's what sums it up. Do Do we have this faith? Will he see men who are approaching their God in a way anything like the widow 
in the parable. Now, James 5.16 says this, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And here's the example. It's Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Uh, We should certainly be like the widow, and we should be like Elijah. We should pray in faith. Let's do so now. Gracious Heavenly Father, we had to acknowledge at the beginning that prayer is difficult for us. It is utterly contrary to fallen human nature, and all of our enemies stand against us. And Lord, it seems even that so many things stood against the preaching of this sermon. Lord, there is nothing more terrible for the enemy than to see your people praying fervently, praying faithfully, praying unashamedly to the living God. But Lord, we pray that he would see it happen nonetheless. We pray, Lord, that you would have a great victory in this church and in our hearts. We would be thoroughly and firmly convinced that you are better. You are not worse, but you are better than this unjust judge. And that, Lord, we should continually come to you, and we should not lose heart. How we pray, Lord, that you'd grant us faith. How we pray, Lord, that you'd enable us to to know your word, that we might know these promises and come with good reasons and promises before you. Lord, that we would come in faith, and Lord, that we would see great things done, that you would indeed show yourself to be the God of all the earth. And we know, Lord, that you will avenge us speedily. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.